You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. All right. Uh, Why don't you find your way back to your seats? We will transition into the Word. Uh, Before we uh, get into the sermon, a few um, church updates. You might see on your seat next to you a card with uh, our missions partners in North Africa. Please take one of those home, put it up on your fridge. If your fridge is magnetic, like only one part of ours is, it's weird, but we have our missions cards up there so we remember uh, to pray for them as we make our coffee and feel our need for God in the morning, which I do. Um, And so there's that. Take one of those home with you. Um, also want to call out, we have membership class starting next week. It's going to be kind of offset the 10th and the 24th. If you've been here for a while or not that long and you're not a member, we'd encourage you to come and check that out. Membership is not explicitly commanded in Scripture, but we see it here as a natural outworking of what God does say to us in Scripture, that we're called to live our lives together, um, caring for one another, encouraging one another in following Jesus. And we see membership as a natural outworking of that. And so we'd encourage you uh, to consider taking that step. You're not signing your name in blood just by coming to the class. So I'd say come check it out. Um, Hear from James Garcia and I, me, uh, about that. We have no idea how we're going to do it, but it's going to be fun. promise you that. Um, And then finally, uh, we heard, you know, Zach was in North Africa this week. Um, Heard really good reports um, over there that he was able to encourage not just the families that we know, but their broader team that's been growing as well. And so um, a thank you to uh, Uvine Church for your ongoing commitment to uh, supporting our missions partners in that way. He was a blessing in that. Um, Zach signed off from Slack on Thursday for his sabbatical, which is another exciting thing. And then on Friday, Jackie messaged some of the elders and staff and let us know we had a little situation here at the church. Perfect timing, right? Um, turns out we had a raccoon again find its way into the ceiling. This one did not set up camp as well. It kind of fell and bit it immediately. And so we had a growing stench situation out in the lobby. Uh, A big thanks to Scott Welch for dealing with that. Um, Yes. (laughs) Um, And I I don't know, I'm sure there's more stories to that. Um, But yeah, thank you to Scott um, I'm glad that we are actually able to be here um, for, for a while. We were wondering if we're going to have to switch to online only, and it'd be me like preaching for the first time in five years into a camera in a room by myself. So uh, I'm very thankful for that. Okay, uh, Bibles in the back. If you don't have one or you need one, go grab one. If you don't have one at home, take that home with you. This is God's Word, and it's for us. Uh, we're going to have it up on the screen We're looking at Matthew 26. We're picking up where we left off uh, about five or six weeks ago. So I will read the passage for us this morning. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 
And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is God's word. It is given to us in love. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word, that in it we see Jesus. And we pray in this time that you would open our eyes to him, to who he is and what he's done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the cutting room floor of um, sermon titles and themes for this week is um, Judas, Priests, and a Kiss, um, which if you like heavy metal bands, that would have been a good one. Thank you. Um, Also could have continued with uh, mocking themes from James, which would be Betrayal in an Olive Garden, which mostly just makes me think about how I feel when I eat all the breadsticks they bring you. But that's not what this sermon is about. This text is showing us Jesus and his faithfulness in contrast to the failures of all those around him. As I was thinking about this, I thought about the movie Interstellar. And so here come the spoilers. You can't, it's seven years, it's on you at this point. Um, And there's a character in Interstellar, Dr. Mann, which is a little bit heavy-handed in the name, if you ask me. But he leads others on a mission to save mankind. And the whole time, he's introduced later in the movie, but the whole time he's spoken of in these really lofty terms, Dr. Mann is the best of us. But ultimately, we find that Dr. Mann along the way realized that his portion of the mission is doomed. He cracks and causes harm to others and ultimately endangers this whole mission to save humanity. And at this key point in the movie, he says to another character, Don't judge me. You were never tested like I was. Few men have been. Don't judge me. The thing is, at this point in the movie, as the viewer, 
we are actually invited right there to say, should we judge him? In these incredibly difficult circumstances, are his selfish and awful behaviors justified? Well, so often in our lives as well, we like to take our behaviors and view them through the lens of our circumstances. We like to say, yes, I lost my temper there, but man, my kid was really annoying, right? We want to judge our behaviors by our best self and not in reality. As we reach the end of Matthew, many of our regular characters are back, and they are being tested. Tensions are rising. We're going to see how they respond. Jesus here is on a mission to save mankind, and he is going to be tested. He knows this is going to cost him his life. And what we're going to see in this is that Jesus, under pressure, under betrayal, under pain of death, does not crack. He remains faithful to what God has called him to. We're going to see that in contrast with the others in the story. So let's look at the start of this. Right away, we see Judas is introduced uh, as the betrayer. We knew this already, though. Jesus identified him as that at the Last Supper, and just at the end of the last passage, he said, hey, here comes my betrayer. So Jesus knows what is going on. He's not being caught off guard by this. He's seen this coming. He's been talking about this for really most of the book of Matthew, that he's headed to the cross here. And Judas uh, is incredibly disingenuous. Now, the first thing that tips me off to that is calling Jesus rabbi. Now, rabbi means teacher. In itself, there's nothing wrong with the word rabbi. But it's only used four times in Matthew, twice by Jesus, twice by Judas. When Jesus uses it, Jesus is talking about it in the context of um, people who are trying to prop themselves up uh, to look good to others or to use the term to kind of put themselves above others. Let's look at that text in Matthew 23 where Jesus does this. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. I love a pat on the back too, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. So it strikes me as no coincidence that Judas uses the term rabbi here. At the best, he's a really poor listener. But I think in context, it comes off as sarcastic and mocking. And you pair that with Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, an act of affection and friendship. And you have to ask, why the pretense? You've got a mob with clubs and swords behind you. You can just point at the guy and say, that's the one. But Judas is so twisted in his sin that you see these two terms um, twisted and perverted, and the kiss showing just how sinful he is. In contrast, though, Jesus responds to uh, Judas and calls him friend. Now, this word friend is also a pretty unique one, uh, only used here in Matthew. Uh, The other time that Jesus uses it, you might remember when um, we had the parable of the laborers. And some of the laborers started work at the start of the day and agreed to work for one denarius, and the the manager hired people throughout the day. And at the end of the day, he paid everyone a denarius. This showed a picture of God's generosity. That manager, to the people who complained that they'd worked all day for the same price, said the same word, friend, I am doing you no wrong. 
And so Jesus here being betrayed uses a word of kindness, but also kind of has this tone of reminding Judas of how out of place he is. But this is what we're going to see through these two, two parts of this passage, is that Jesus, in being betrayed by one of his closest friends, the words out of his mouth are not lashing back or trying to show Judas up or in his self-defense, but it's calling him a friend. It's maybe even calling him to repentance in that. This is kindness from Jesus. This is his holiness on display. This is Jesus' sinless perfection. It's not that Jesus never saw an injustice and acted against it, right? He cleared the temple just a few days ago because he saw the injustice that was taking place there. Jesus will speak up about that. But here, the the offense is against him, and he responds in kindness. This reminds me to ask, how do I respond when I'm wronged? I remember a few years ago at work, I had a client who just had it out for me. She took every opportunity to try to make me look bad to the point of falsehoods. And this obviously was really getting to me. And ultimately, I became convicted that uh, my response to her of being upset and being angry just wasn't in line with what Jesus does. Um, And instead, I was called in that to pray for those who persecute me, to pray for my enemies. And as I did that, my heart was transformed toward her, and I was able to walk in patience. Now, that's not to say that I'm perfect in this, right? That's not the point of this uh, illustration. This week, I had, a, I had a, a work situation where, man, my blood was boiling for a minute. But what I want to ask us is, do we just sit there and say, how I'm responding right now is okay? I'm being pushed right now. This person is being unjust. Or do we say, how would Jesus respond here? What has Jesus called me to here? And ask him for help. And that's what I think Jesus calls us to here to turn to him, to ask him to transform our hearts when we are wronged and when we are betrayed, but also to marvel at Jesus' patience with the worst of sinners. If Jesus has that patience toward Judas, how much does he have that toward us? Isn't that good news? Okay, so onward in the story, Uh, Judas has betrayed Jesus, and the crowd goes to seize Jesus. And uh, no big surprise, but we uh, we find out from other Gospels, Matthew doesn't say it, Peter is the first to act. Now, Peter's packing heat, he's got a sword, and he comes out swinging. Now, I think it's interesting that Matthew doesn't name him here. We know it's Peter, right? But the disciples in this story are acting as a group. We're kind of invited ourselves to see ourselves in this story as one of, a, one of the followers of Jesus. And it's not great. Under pressure, Jesus immediately rebukes their action. They're ready to meet sword with sword, but Jesus says this isn't the way. Now, why does Jesus say that? There's a couple of reasons. The first is Jesus is not lacking in power. This is something we need to remember about Jesus through this story and all the way through the cross. In this case, Jesus says there's 12 legions of angels at his disposal. That's 72,000 angels, if you want to do the math on that. And this, this gets honestly a little bit absurd, but let's take a look at Isaiah 37 and just kind of think through how much power Jesus says he has at his disposal here. In Isaiah 37, we have the story where an angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, 
those were all dead bodies. That's one angel. Okay, so 185,000 times 72,000 is a lot of commas. And the point is Jesus does not lack in power. Jesus has been tempted this way by the devil before, right? The devil in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness said, Jesus, call on the power, use the power, do what you can because you're the son of God. And there, as in here, Jesus is choosing to forsake his power for the sake of the purpose that he knows he has. What is that purpose? Well, you've heard it here that repetition is important. We repeat that a lot, so that means it must really be important, right? Let's read and look at this passage again, and we'll see what Jesus says. Jesus says, But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Stands out, right? Jesus said twice he's choosing this path so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now, the thing that's interesting to me here is Jesus doesn't quote one specific passage. Jesus isn't lacking in knowledge of the scripture. We see him throughout all of Matthew. He just drops them, right? He knows scripture. He can quote it on the spot for any circumstance. But here he says the scriptures. I think this is worth some reflection. Back in, uh, in Luke, uh, Luke 24, after Jesus was raised to the dead, he said this to his disciples. He says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's a great example of how Jesus sees not just specific verses, but all of scripture pointing to himself. I've been working through Matthew again this week as we're approaching uh, the end. And this morning I was in Matthew 16, and this really stood out to me. We don't have a slide for this, but if you have your Bibles open, you can flip back to Matthew 16. And um, I think it's in here in verse 21. Jesus says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. What that says to me is Jesus, before his resurrection, after his resurrection, he's making the same point to his disciples. This isn't just happening as a coincidence. Jesus going to the cross for our sake and being raised is the culmination of the plan of the whole Old Testament. It's not just proof texted out of little things where we drop in here or there. All of the scriptures are pointing to this moment, this weekend with Jesus, going to the cross on our behalf. I think there are some, some scriptures that Jesus had in mind in particular, and that maybe walk us through what's going on a little bit more. We'll see later, Jesus has Psalm 22 on his mind, but I think even in this story here, as Jesus is being betrayed and tried, um, Isaiah 53 really comes to mind and illustrates this type of idea of how Jesus is connecting what he is doing to God's purpose in Scripture. Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We already see that here. We're going to see it more. Jesus is not striking back. He's not trying to prove his point. He's not forcefully defending himself. He's submitted to this plan. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So many of those things in that prophecy from Isaiah, it's called the suffering servant. So many of those things, we see them um, displayed in Jesus as he goes to the cross. And so Jesus sees himself as the culmination of God's plan here. He is fulfilling what God has called him to do, what the Father has called him to do. He's establishing his kingdom and bringing about forgiveness of sin through his sufferings. And his disciples are missing it. He's taught them about this, but they're just missing it. They are all on board with Jesus as the Messiah and the King, and they don't understand that he's also the suffering servant. And so in light of that, Jesus tells them that the sword is out of place in the coming of Jesus' kingdom, because Jesus is establishing his kingdom not by carrying the sword, but by carrying the cross. Jesus said this to them back at Matthew 16, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Jesus is saying, live by the sword and you'll die by the sword. But the good news is, die by the cross and you'll live. This is death by living. This is what Jesus calls us to. We're called as we believe in him and follow him, not to bear swords as instruments of power, but rather to bear our crosses, instruments of service and sacrifice. There's so many beautiful pictures of this in our church, from Scott dealing with the raccoon this week to three or four things I know are happening this morning in terms of people serving others in this church where it's almost embarrassing to call out how much our church does that so often. It's a beautiful thing. But this is is really the heart of uh, the day-to-day Christian life, serving others. In our city group serves, right? We seek to serve those who have needs in the community around us. But beyond that, you know, in our city groups, we want to live with one another, know one another, so that we can see the needs that one another have. And when we see those needs... And when we sacrificially seek to meet them, we're acting like Jesus. We're following Jesus in that. We see this in how we want to approach our relationships. How do you live with your roommate, with your family? Are we seeking to serve them, or are we seeking to build ourselves up? The world says, grab whatever power, whatever privilege you can. And Jesus tells us we're already accepted by the one who has the power of legions of angels at his disposal. And so we're invited to be like Christ by laying down our lives for others. The second thing I want to call us to in in this portion of the passage, though, is do we embrace Scripture the way Jesus does? Jesus sees Scripture as normative. It defines who he is and what we do. Now, All of Scripture is about Jesus. All of Scripture is not about you, but it is for you. And in it, God tells you what is good and what is right. And I think we need to pause and slow down every now and then and ask, are we looking to Scripture to define what is good? Do we allow Scripture to speak to ethical issues, sexuality, identity, who we date, where our priorities lie? What does God say about that? And do we believe scripture that God is for us in the midst of suffering? When we experience suffering, do you find consolation in scripture? Do you look there? Do you know the Psalms, 
that remind us that God is with us in our darkest times. Some of us, some of you are, are younger. I, I remember even, you know, 10 years ago, um, I hadn't experienced some of the difficult things that just are going to come in life. And the Psalms of Lament didn't make sense to me at that point. But when you encounter those difficult seasons, go to Scripture, and the Psalms are waiting for you there. I mean, go now. Um, Jesus is experiencing abandonment by his closest friends in his greatest hour of need. And like I said earlier, Psalm 22 is on his mind. My God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus knows that that psalm ends with a reminder that God is with him. Okay, so disciples flee. They're out of here. And we're on to Jesus' trial. Now, at this point, we're introduced again to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest at this time in Israel. We haven't seen him by name much. I think it's important to kind of see in this story, we see it kind of in in how this story plays out. Yes, Caiaphas is the high priest, but he's more than just a religious leader. He's leading kind of this social group as well. Caiaphas brings Jesus in, and we've got a, a trial by night. Now, according to a lot of historical documents, just a little bit after the time of Jesus, trial by night was not allowed by the, by the laws of the Israelites themselves. So they're breaking their own rules to try to get Jesus where they want him. And beyond that, they're, seeking, they're openly saying that we're seeking false testimony. The thing that cracks me up a little bit, I, I think I can say that, is that they're bringing false testimony. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Which, it's just kind of striking, even these people who are so full of deceit, they're like, the the testimony that we found, it's not good enough. Like, that's pretty, pretty low bar that they're not meeting. But ultimately, they find folks who will come forward and come pretty close to the words that Jesus said. Um, This is in Matthew 26, a little bit later. Um, and they came forward and they said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, those words don't actually happen in Matthew. They do happen in John. And there Jesus says, destroy this temple, meaning himself, and I will rebuild it. So again, even here, his words are being twisted. He's being falsely accused in this. But Caiaphas jumps at it because this is going to be good enough, he thinks, to get Jesus killed. If he can kind of pin insurrection and destruction and problems like that on Jesus, the Romans will want none of it. We can get Jesus killed. That's his goal. But again here, Jesus is going to remain silent. Again, like Isaiah 53, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So Jesus is not going to forcefully defend himself. So Caiaphas presses the point, though. Um, And and again here, another kind of tragic irony is Caiaphas is pushing the only person in the room who's truthful, Jesus, to tell the truth. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Like, really, Caiaphas? You're the one bringing false witnesses, doing a trial by night, and you're asking Jesus, like, pretty please be truthful? And what does he say? Tell us if you are the Christ. Are you the Messiah? He's saying, are you claiming to be king? Now, this phrase really stands out. We saw this in John, actually, in the passage uh, we had for confession and assurance. We see this a few points in Matthew as well. 
saying Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is one of the like, preeminent ways of confessing faith in Jesus and who he is. He's the one who's sent to save us. He's the one who is the king of Israel. And Caiaphas is using these words. Now, Caiaphas is not being genuine in this. Caiaphas is looking for something to pin to Jesus and get him killed. And he knows that if he can trot someone out who's claiming to be king, that'll do the job. This is kind of like Herod back at the start of Matthew saying to the wise men, tell me where the baby is so I can go and worship him. There's no genuineness in this. And Jesus knows this. And so Jesus' response is incredible. He says, you have said so. Jesus says this twice in Matthew. Once here and once with Judas. Judas at the Last Supper, Jesus has told his disciples, one of you will betray me. And uh, Judas says, tell me, Rabbi, is it, is it me? And Jesus says, you have said so. So why, why is this? Jesus could say yes. Jesus could say no. But he says, you have said so. I think the reason is he's letting people kind of self-condemn in this. He's saying to Judas, or he's saying to Caiaphas here, you know who I am. You've seen my miracles. You've heard my teachings. You know my authority. You know it enough to bring this against me as if it's a false charge, but it's true. And that in itself, Jesus agreeing with that charge, again, is probably enough for Caiaphas to trot Jesus off under the charge of insurrection. But Jesus isn't done. As he continues, he's going to use another name for himself here. We've heard Messiah or Christ. We've heard Son of God. And he's going to use his favorite term for himself in all of Matthew, Son of Man. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, pause right there, We've heard this one before as well, right? Think back to like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would always say, you have heard it said, but I say to you, or but I tell you, right? This is Jesus speaking with authority and teaching. And what is he going to say? But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. So you don't need your cross-references to figure out what's going on right now. We're going to hit the cross-reference. But Caiaphas interprets Jesus' words for us. Blasphemy means Jesus is claiming himself to be God. And to him, to Caiaphas, that is the greatest offense. He tears his clothes. He's uttered blasphemy. We don't have to you know, dig too deep to understand how Caiaphas interprets this. But I think we do need to jump back and we need to look at Daniel. Jesus is really clearly echoing Daniel here. Again, Jesus has used the, the, the idea of calling himself son of man dozens of times through Matthew. It's always connected with authority. You might remember Jesus saying, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is more, you know, it just determines what the Sabbath means. Or judgment, he says, the son of man is going to come with his angels. But this really is the culmination of all of that use. So this is in Daniel, and Daniel's having a vision. And he has this vision where he sees God, the throne room of God. And there's angels, and there's clouds, and it's bright. And then he says, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now, son of man in the Old Testament is really just saying like, looks like a guy. Meaning like in itself, it's not like every time you read son of man in the Old Testament, you're like, there's God, that's Jesus right there. Like, no, it just means a dude. But in the context here, there's one who came like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what I'm getting at here is that in this passage, the one like a son of man is like a son of man, meaning he has human characteristics, but he's also one who's seated next to God and being given the dominion and glory that belongs only to God. This person has divine and human characteristics. You see where I'm going with, us, with this one, right? Jesus is saying, I am that one. I am that one who is both man and God. I am the one who is going to receive the worship of all the nations. <laughs> and you can see why Caiaphas would say, this is a problem right now, right? Caiaphas, who does not like Jesus, who does not believe Jesus, he says, this is a problem. Caiaphas, again, is is the high priest. And in Judaism at that time, only the high priest entered into the holiest part of the temple where God's presence resided. And only once a year, and only with sacrifices and preparations and washings, and would only go in and stand and do what he had to do and come back out. And Jesus is saying, right now, you stand in judgment over me. Right now, you deny me. Right now, you seek my death. But then, you will see me seated next to the Father. Then you will see me coming in power. This is an incredibly dramatic scene. Jesus is giving us the clearest picture of who he is. He's the sinless man who lived the life we could not live. He's the one who died the death that we deserved as the suffering servant. And he is God who will be worshipped by all nations. Now Caiaphas does not believe. That's the tragedy here. He calls for judgment from the other leaders. The trial's done. And they see Jesus as guilty. Jesus is mocked and spit on and beaten. And so the faithful one has been betrayed. And the steadfast one has been abandoned. And the truthful one has had false witness born against him. The gentle one, the lowly in heart, is mocked. This is all leading to the one who committed no crime, dying a criminal's death. Scripture says, For our sake he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we see here. Jesus has known no sin. Even in his most trying moment, he does not sin. He lived the life that we could not. We actually, I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago as we were reviewing our... 
membership covenant together. And in there, we have something along the lines of saying, we affirm the gospel, which says that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf and died a death, a sacrificial death for us, and was raised to new life. We believe all of those things. We believe all three, and all three are critical, that Jesus lived the life that we could not. And the good news for us as we see Jesus being betrayed and beaten is that this is not the end of the story. I want to take us over to Revelation 5, which I think is fitting here to close, because it's the other side, kind of the other perspective of the Daniel passage we just looked at. In Daniel, you see Jesus, um, you see Daniel's looking up and seeing Jesus enthroned and being given dominion. And Revelation 5 almost seems like it's the same scene, but looking at it from the other side of the room. So here's what it says. They sang a new song. This is the saints around the throne saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Isn't this beautiful? Jesus is worthy because he was slain, because he paid the price for us, because he conquered death. He is the one who is worthy. So this morning, as we close, I just want to call us to marvel at Jesus, to worship him, to be reminded of how good he is, to be reminded of how he was sinless and perfect, and yet he came and forgave and died for us who are not. He is worthy. He lived the life we could not live. He's going to die the death we could not die so that we can know the goodness of the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his perfection in life. We thank you for his sacrificial death. We thank you that he conquered the grave. God, we know that so many around Jesus missed him, didn't get it, didn't listen to him. And so we pray this morning as we've been looking at him that you would work in our hearts. God, would you remind us anew of the goodness of Jesus, of how he is for us, of how your spirit is with us, And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.